This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the state of employer-based insurance coverage. With me to discuss the topic is James Gelfand, Senior VP for Health Policy at ERIC. James, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, David. Mr. Gelfand's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, most Americans still receive their health care coverage via their employer. In 2015, approximately 55% or 155 million Americans received employer-based health coverage, though that's a decline from 67% in 1999. Higher wage workers are more likely to receive employer coverage. For example, 83% of those who earn more than four times federal poverty are enrolled in employer coverage compared with 38% of those earning between 1% and 250% of the federal poverty level. Under the ACA, as of 2016, employers with 50 full-time equivalent workers or more must either offer affordable coverage to those workers and their dependents or face a financial penalty. Despite the ACA's employer shared responsibility provision, after 2010 passage of the ACA, there was widespread predictions that employers, particularly small employers, would drop employee coverage. This has proven to be only marginally true. Uh, the percent, moreover, the percent of small employers offering health benefits has decreased from 68% uh, in 2010 to 56% in 2015, a quarter, according rather to an annual Kaiser Family Foundation survey. With that as background, again, with me to discuss the state of employer-based coverage is James Gelfand. So, James, I mentioned. Um, you're the Senior VP of Health Policy at ERIC. Can you briefly describe ERIC's work? Sure. ERIC stands for the ERISA Industry Committee, which represents about 100 uh, very, very large employers, each of which tends to have at least 10,000 U.S. employees and offers them comprehensive health and benefits. Uh, ERIC advocates for those employees specifically on health, compensation, and benefit issues. Okay, thank you. So leaving aside the question of what, uh, beyond possibly a tightening labor market, explains continuing employer coverage, uh, what premium designs or purchasing approaches are employers or large employers, your uh, members, using to continue to provide coverage? This, of course, is the daunting task. So what, what are some of the um, uh, measures uh, being used? Well, so as you know, most very large employers tend to offer multiple plans. So an employee will, will go to work for this employer and then get to choose, do I want to have perhaps a comprehensive PPO or perhaps a high deductible health plan that, that has lower premiums up front and perhaps it's paired with either a health savings account or an HRA. Um, and then sometimes they'll be offered an HMO as well. For instance, if you uh, live in an area where there's a very great integrated healthcare system and they have a, a HMO associated with that. So you could generally choose one of those um, depending on the employer. Now, that being said, um, one of the things that the ACA did was kind of put an upward limit on what benefits can look like. And I'm sure that you're... The Cadillac tax, yes. So they're familiar with the Cadillac tax. Um, 
So you've got that at the, at the upper limit. And then at the lower limit, you have an actuarial value requirement that says in order for an applicable large employer, which means 50 or more full-time equivalent employees, um, to meet the shared responsibility requirement, their plan has to be good enough, right? It has to pay a certain portion of the medical cost of the enrollees. So what you have now is you have a sort of range, a ceiling and a floor, and it's in between there where these plans um, come down on what they look like, what they offer, um, and, and how much they can they can uh, attract employees. So playing in that space, what a lot of employers are doing is they're saying, okay, well, we, we can't necessarily make the benefit richer, and we can't necessarily make it cheaper by just making it um, less rich and, and more bare bones. So we have to innovate. We have to come up with ways of perhaps uh, mitigating costs by um, directing employees to centers of excellence or engaging in care coordination, wellness programs, things that are aimed at boosting the health status and thus lowering the risk inside that pool, while at the same time maintaining those requirements that, that are there at the ACA. Okay, thank you. There, We could spend, obviously, an hour on what employers are doing to make uh, more affordable both for themselves and their employee relative to their premiums. Um, let, let me just ask you about a couple. Uh, last few years, you, you've, you've, you've seen this movement. Uh, Boeing, amongst others, are signing these what are called direct primary care contracts with providers. Amongst your uh, members, do you, do you see that behavior, or is it increasing? It's a growing trend, but the challenge is um, it really depends upon what that employer looks like. I, I have uh, member companies that are in literally every town, every city, every county, but that doesn't mean that they have enough um, employees in the given place that they can really um, do direct contracting. So one of the companies that you mentioned, they have a really strong presence in the Pacific Northwest, and that enables them um, to have a, a, a sort of scale, a market scale, in a specific area that, that makes it worthwhile to do this kind of arrangement. So I think when you talk about direct contracting, contracting, you want to look for an employer that's going to have thousands of employees in a specific place, and that's the kind of employer that's going to be taking action on that. Okay, thank you. Let me follow up with another uh, dynamic. Uh, in the 90s, there were a number, I think upwards of 25 Minnesota-based uh, uh, large Fortune 500 companies who decided basically to do group purchasing. And the, actually, the, the title of this article uh, that was published in um, a Business Week in the later 90s was titled HMOectomy. And more recently, in a health affairs blog post uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, there was discussion uh, by Suzanne DelBanco and her colleagues about aligned sourcing. So the same idea. What's your sense of its use and promise? So again, this is another growing trend. And I think, you know, if you haven't had him on yet, you should invite Tevi Troy, who, who can talk to you about... You know, funny, yes, I have interviewed Tevi, yes. <laughs> Why am I not surprised <laughs> by that, David? But, you know, he can talk to you for days about what the Health Transformation Alliance is doing. Um, you've got a growing movement of employers who are saying, we are having trouble with drug companies. Mm -hmm. We are, are not comfortable with the prices that are that are being paid, with the increases that we're seeing, um, specifically when you look at the specialty drug um, tier. That's where a lot of the, the consternation is coming. And so to the extent that the employers can in increase their purchasing power, you know, sometimes they're going to do that on their own, like you mentioned GPOs. Uh, sometimes they're going to do it through um, a PBM. 
um, like one of the big three that, that most large employers have some sort of relationship with, or maybe they'll innovate a new way. But what they're finding is even these employers, and I've got employers who have upwards of a million employees, um, maybe even two million people in, in their plan, covered lives, right? But even that is not necessarily enough covered lives to truly negotiate with some of these drug companies because part of the way that we've designed our system is that those drug companies get a monopoly. We, we choose to give them a monopoly, um, and we do that in order to spur innovation. Um, so at the same time, you know, players who on the outside are looking for ways that they can have an effect on that without necessarily um, messing with the innovation pipeline, which is something that I think everybody tends to support. Yes, in fact, speaking of drugs um, and monopolies or monopsonies, uh, I saw data today that three PBMs have 80%, upwards of 80% uh, of the market. Let me go uh, to this issue uh, of quality. The movement, of course, is pay for performance, pay for value uh, in contracts or reimbursement. Uh, what can you tell me employers are doing uh, relative to improving quality their employees are receiving in care delivery? Well, one of the great things that's happened over really, it's really gotten a lot stronger over the past 10 years, is that almost every part of the healthcare system um, has started to see the supply side share in some of the risk associated um, with, with healthcare costs and outcomes. And so that can range from providers who are choosing to participate in accountable care organizations to um, insurers who are being um, compensated to engage in care coordination on behalf of the plan sponsors, and now even the drugs, where certain drug companies are, are making um, value-based purchasing contracts, where if the drug doesn't work, the payer and the patient end up not having to pay, whereas if the drug is effective, then that drug company is going to be compensated either fairly or perhaps handsomely. Um, but either way, what we're doing is, is we're slowly moving the incentives throughout the system, such that everybody involved, and that goes not just from, from beneficiaries and payers and insurers, but also to providers and to those who are um, adding in things like medical devices or pharmaceuticals into the system, that everybody has that same incentive, which is improve health. And if you get paid for improving health as opposed to you know, increasing the volume of services or, you know, increasing the amount of prescriptions that go out, good Lord, this is important in the opioid space. And then, then you're going to have a better um, approach to the healthcare system that's going to end up benefiting the entire system, and especially patients in the long run, because patients do pay. And so employers in this space, I think for a long time, have been on the very, very forefront. Um, you mentioned that employers have their own ACOs. Yes, and, and employers have been engaged in value-based purchasing arrangements for nearly 20 years. I mean, I'm remembering nearly 15 years ago, there were employers that engaged in care coordination activities where they were paying a, not necessarily a primary care provider, but a care coordination um, expert to make sure that the team of doctors and, and, and pharmacists and other medical providers that were seeing a specific patient would all actually talk to each other as opposed to um, having a situation in which the same test would be done three or four times and the patient and the provider would all have to, or the patient and the payer, all would have to pay for that same test three different times. Um, so we're seeing a good amount of strides in this space. And finally, the government's starting to catch up. I don't know if you saw that yesterday, actually, um, my group, the ERISA Industry Committee, along with another employer group called the Pacific Business Group on Health, launched a new initiative based 
purely on making sure that the public sector is able to catch up, get to where the employer-sponsored system is in terms of being value-driven and rewarding providers and others um, for the quality of the care that they deliver as opposed to simply paying for volume. And the federal government has made some very good strides in this space since um, the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. For instance, look at what they've done in terms of hospital readmissions or hospital-acquired infections. Um, But it's really important that we don't lose that momentum and that we get a lot more out of the public sector. Okay, thank you. Of course, it's always a debate is who's in front or leading the charge, uh, social insurance or the private sector employer-based coverage. Let me, uh, before I go to um, a specific question still with coverage, let me ask a related side question, and that's the retiree coverage question. What's the trend? What are employers doing uh, relative to providing employee, uh, uh, employees who are now retired? I mean, there's no question that retiree medical is a benefit that has been on decline for some time. And for, for in some situations, that had not been a negative because in some situations, it's because social insurance has caught up. So take, for instance, the advent of Medicare Part D. Suddenly, Medicare actually is a safe place to send retirees to go. Um, But unfortunately, for a long time, for early retirees, specifically those individuals in their 50s up to perhaps age 64, so right before they're eligible for Medicare, those folks have been in a tough spot. And that's always been um, a a point of contention amongst employers where they're saying, even if Medicare is good and is, is fair and covers what we need it to cover, that doesn't necessarily mean that early retirees are going to be okay because the individual market is a very, very tough place to be. So we have employers who are looking to ensure that the individual market is a place that is safe for their retirees to go. Um, and, and I think that when you look at both the ACA and also when you look at, you know, whatever might be the successor to the ACA is and when there's a repeal or replace or repair or whatever you want to call it, um, is it going to be somewhere that someone who's 60 years old is going to be okay. And if the answer is no, then employers are going to be under increasing pressure to either bring back retiree medical or to hold on to those um, offerings that are still out there. But if the trend is that those markets get safer and become a place that can adequately take care of those people, then absolutely I think the trend will continue um, that employers will be backing away from this space. So in the uh, with the reality of a, of a functioning state marketplace, the idea would be that the retiree would receive a subsidy and be able to buy a plan on the exchanges. Right, and keep in mind that that prior to the ACA, um, there were many states that had age bans that were were so large that a retiree would have to pay inordinate amounts in order to get coverage. But the ACA brought that down to three to one, and that actually made coverage much more affordable for those who are at the more senior um, ages. Right. Right. Thank you. Let's go to this much-discussed topic, reasonably contentious, and that's uh, these HRAs, health risk assessments. Uh, What's Eric's view on the effectiveness of these and related uh, wellness programs? The the, the research really is is fairly divided. Uh, Some shows these are productive. Uh, Some say they're largely ineffective, and some of the criticism concerns Uh, privacy issues. So what's your organization's view on employing uh, these tools? Well, let's look at privacy next, but first let's just talk about the effectiveness. So you said that there's some research that shows that they are effective and some that that says that they are Mm -hmm. not. 
they're both right. And the reason <laughs> is because <laughs> the reason is it, it matters what you do with it. Okay. If you just have people fill out an HRA, that doesn't actually do anything to improve their health. That doesn't actually do anything to it, to um, change the dynamics of what's going on in your covered lives. So, so that's not what my employers do. Certainly not. I mean, the, the biggest employers, and remember, I only represent about 100 of the very, very largest. These are very engaged employers. And so they have two primary things that they do based on their wellness programs. So number one, all that data that, that goes um, to the third-party uh, vendors, it gets aggregated. And, and that aggregated data that's also de-identified, it's analyzed. And what you can do then is you can start to, to make decisions about plan design. You can say, hey, wait a minute. I have a serious problem in this plan with pre-diabetics. And unless we start to put an emphasis on that, and that can mean all kinds of different things, from um, interventions to straight up just saying, we're going to start waiving copays for insulin, or we're going to start um, waiving, we're going to start paying for people's gym memberships, right? These are all options that are on the table, but you're not going to know that you need to do that unless you have that aggregated data that tells you what's going on in these in these tens or hundreds of thousands of, of health stories that you have of people who who uh, work for you or engage in your plan. Um, the second one is targeted interventions, and this one is where the the employer will say to to the third party vendor that has, has collected this data from them, they'll say, okay, well we can tell that there are a number of people who have tried to quit smoking and they have not been successful. So we're going to go ahead and give you permission to reach out to those people and to offer them resources, either to help them to enroll in, in some sort of smoking cessation program or to get them connected with um, some of the various um, risk reductions, harm reduction options that are out there, et cetera. And so in those cases, rather than making an overall plan design change, what you're doing is you're, you're authorizing this, this um, HIPAA um, HIPAA-regulated entity to go out to those people and to say, okay, um, because of you, you put this in, we want to offer you this that could help you. And if you're doing those kinds of things, of course this is effective because every single person who you prevent from – you've heard of this, the 80-20 conundrum? Sure, or, right, or, yes. Okay. And if you can keep someone in the 80%, you're saving tons of money and you're letting them live a better life. So there's no question about that. It's just that there's a preponderance of, of these employers who they don't get it and they're not engaged. I mean, think about a small employer who might have an HR department of one, right? That's not someone who's necessarily going to be sophisticated enough uh, to, to go out there and say, okay, well, we're going to go and we're going to make plan design changes based on this um, aggregated information. So I think, you know, it is what you make of it. So you would say on balance, your members are bullish and the use of these are widespread. Absolutely. Um, I did want to touch on privacy as well, because I have noticed um, a great deal of fake news in the past couple of months, um, specifically about a piece of legislation um, that moves through the House Education and Workforce. Right, Committee. yes, the Wellness um, Progress Act, yes. Right, it's H.R. 1313, um, the Protecting Employee Wellness Programs Act. Um, and, and this is a bill that it, it looks complicated when you read through the legislative language, as many pieces of legislation do but it is exceedingly simple in what it does. And what it does is it says there are two different regulatory regimes right now that are attempting to regulate employer wellness programs. One of those regimes is the regime that was made in the wake of the Affordable Care Act. It's, it's, a, it's a regulation that was created by uh, teamwork by the Department of Health and Human Services, the Department of Labor, and the Department of Treasury. All three agencies under the Obama administration, they created a regulatory framework. 
Then you've got the second regulatory framework, which was made by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC. EEOC does not like wellness programs. They want to get rid of them. They want to get rid of premium variation for, for participation in a wellness program. And so they decided, well, we want to regulate these programs too. And they looked at through the Affordable Care Act. And what they found is the ACA did not give them one iota of authority to regulate wellness programs. So what they did was they invented authority for themselves under the auspices of the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Genetic Information Nondisclosure Act. So fast forward now. We've got these two different regulations. One, it's a tri-agency thing. It's a consensus thing. The business um, is used to complying with it. Businesses like it. And then two is the EEOC's regulation. It's considered draconian. It conflicts with the other regulation. And frankly, the, the authority to make it was kind of invented by, by this commission. So this piece of legislation is exceedingly simple. All it does is it says we're getting rid of the EEOC regulation and we're going to the Obama administration's tri-agency regulation, period. Why is there this privacy uproar? Well, here's something that I learned from working on Capitol Hill. When you write the words Genetic Information Non-Disclosure Act in a piece of legislation, you better get ready for people to start howling because it scares people and they, and they don't know what it means or what's going to happen to them and they're afraid that they're going to lose the privacy protections that they currently have. Under this bill, nobody would lose any protection that they currently have. It's just propaganda that's being put out there by various groups that really just don't like wellness programs. Um, and, and, you know, that's fine. There, there's going to be some groups that just don't believe that, that someone should be able to get a discount on their, on their health insurance premium based on participation in a wellness program. Obviously, my employers believe that that's a good policy because it incentivizes people to do wellness programs and to get better health. Okay, thank you. Let me go to my uh, last question, and it doesn't get easier. This is uh, a large one as well. Uh, last August, I interviewed uh, American, Enterprise, American Enterprise Institute Joe Antos. You probably know or know of him regarding the employer tax exclusion. Uh, this issue frequently comes up in the context of healthcare and or tax reform. Uh, and that generally there's agreement uh, this policy has problems for any number of reasons. So my question uh, is, what's Eric's position on the employer tax exclusion? You did mention the Cadillac tax. Obviously, that's a related issue. Uh, and one way to answer the question is modifying the Cadillac tax. But again, I'm interested in this because, of course, whether we get anywhere with health care reform, next up is tax reform, and this is the largest tax exclusion far and away more than charitable donations and the mortgage interest deduction. Uh, but again, what's Eric's view on uh, the tax exclusion? You know, you're right, David, that I've known Joe Antos and his colleagues like Jim Capretta for decades. And I will tell you, you know, one of the biggest conundrums that I've always had about this issue is why are groups like the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute so hell-bent on raising taxes on the 170 million people who get their health insurance um, through an employer. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to say. I think that the reason is because the employer-sponsored system came about because of a tax policy that was created under FDR during World War II in which there were wage caps. And so uh, it's the only way to attract, um, you know, to, to, to compete with other employers in terms of compensation was to say, okay, well, we can't give you a higher salary, but we can give you something else. We can give you this because that's, um, and that was benefits. So what these guys want to do 
is they want to roll back the clock to the 1940s. Now, that's pretty old school. I think that if you talk to most employers, what they would say is, A, our employees love their health care benefits and they don't want to have to go shop on their own. And B, we don't believe that dumping 170 million people into the individual market is going to solve any problems. In fact, probably just going to exacerbate many of the problems that already exist um, right now today, as well as leaving our employees way, way worse off. So for my member companies, their absolute number one issue is to both get rid of the Cadillac tax and prevent some kind of new tax on employee benefits, whether that's called a cap on the exclusion or not. That's what it is. The tax on health insurance is provided through an employer. So Eric's a firm no, I take it. Firm, firm, firm no. As no as no can get. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that's clear. Well, James, uh, we're at our, our time. Uh, I want to say thank you. You covered a lot of ground in an efficient manner, so I'm genuinely very appreciative. And I will say going out that with all discussion about, particularly today, as we noted before we started, about potentially a vote tonight in the House or tomorrow on changing the Affordable Care Act, uh, that's 20-odd million lives. And again, as we noted here, employer-sponsored is, what, uh, eight times that number. Uh, so obviously a very important uh, subject that should possibly get even more attention. But with all that, uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me on, and come back anytime. Thanks again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.